0: Hello and welcome to World of Warbirds, I'm Brian Pierce. Firstly, I'd like to start off today's show with an observation that the podcast has had more than 11,000 listens, and the World of Warbirds Facebook page now has more than a thousand followers. Thanks for coming along with me on this journey as we all discover and learn more about these fascinating fighting flying machines. And just a reminder to any of our new listeners that the Facebook page is the place to go to see pictures of what we're talking about in these episodes. Because although I love the audio medium of the podcast, sometimes it's nice to see a picture of what we're talking about. As always, feel free to comment or send me messages or requests, either via Facebook Messenger or my email address. I enjoy getting your feedback. Speaking of requests, I've got listener Dales OS2U Kingfisher and listener Matthews Machi 202 Fulgore in the queue. I can't promise that they'll come quickly, but I can promise that they will come. But enough of what my French friends call blablaté, and let's get into this episode. I was a model maker as a kid, and two of the aircraft that I built, painted, and hung over my bed with a piece of fishing line were the B-17 Flying Fortress and the B-24 Liberator. Back then, and even until recently, I had thought that they were basically the airplane equivalent of classmates. Conceived, designed and built at roughly the same time and then sent overseas in great numbers to help break the back of the axis. However, I was surprised later on when I realized that the B-17 was actually an older aircraft by a couple of years and that the B-24 was a younger and newer design. This is especially shocking when the fortress always seems to get all the attention and the love. Usually, when we're looking at warbirds, the older bird loses out. Don't get me wrong, I love the hurricane, but being a little older in design than the Spitfire, it gets overshadowed. The opposite is true between the Liberator and the fortress. As far as I know... There is no liberator version of the Memphis Bell, and the last movie I saw involving a B-24, Unbroken, it crashed rather dramatically and seemingly for no reason. I could just hear the B-17 fans muttering, "If it ain't Boeing, I'm not going." But this episode is about the B-24, and except for a few comparisons that really must be made with the B-17. I promise that the Liberator will be allowed to shine here. Design and Development Consolidated Aircraft was born in 1932 when Reuben H. Fleet acquired Gallaudet Aircraft Company, which was in liquidation, and the Dayton Wright Company, which was being closed, and brought them back to life together under the banner consolidated aircraft. Fleet was actually a pretty interesting guy in terms of aviation. He was already an established businessman and a captain in the Washington National Guard when the United States entered into World War I in 1917. Fleet began training in the aviation section of the Signal Corps and graduated junior military aviator number 74. He obtained a commission in the Army as a major and was assigned as acting commanding officer of the 18th Aero Training Squadron. With his superior officer being Colonel Hap Arnold, the future commanding general of Army Air Forces, Fleet initially started by running training squadrons, but then was also given the job of setting up a scheduled U.S. airmail between New York and Washington, D.C., Fleet was put in charge of the Aerial Mail section, as well as continuing on as Executive Officer for Flying Training. He was involved in the modification of turbochargers for air applications also. For his various contributions to aviation, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal. Have you ever seen the famous Inverted Jenny postage stamp that shows an airplane flying upside down? and is worth so much because of this printing mistake? In 2013, the United States Postal Service printed souvenir sheets of these stamps to commemorate the valuable inverted Jenny stamp. And for his pioneering of airmail, our man Fleet is in the lower left corner of this sheet. Anyhow, let's get back to his work with Consolidated. In 1922, Fleet resigned from the military and took a job with the Gallaudet Aircraft Company which was known for making seaplanes. The next year he did the merger between Gallaudet and Dayton Wright Company and fittingly named the two consolidated companies Consolidated. They built a variety of trainers, observation, patrol and transport aircraft before hitting on the very successful and very well-known PBY Catalina in 1936 which one day will get an episode all to itself. In 1937, they released the PB2Y Coronado, a large four-engined flying boat patrol bomber. In 1938, Consolidated was asked by the Army Air Corps if it could build the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress under license. Consolidated's management team visited Boeing Seattle plant and in January of 1939, Reuben Fleet and the chief engineer Isaac Ladin said, no, they didn't think they could build it. They thought they could build something better. The Air Corps encouraged the company to proceed and amazingly, in a month's time, the company had a mock-up put together. In February, the USAAC issued type specification C-212, which asked for a heavy bomber that was to have a maximum speed greater than 300 miles per hour, a range of 2,000 miles, and a ceiling of 35,000 feet. This specification was just a formality, and was written so that Consolidated Design was the only competitor, and automatically the winner, of the competition. A month after that, the government issued a contract for one prototype, which was given the designation XB-24. On a personal note, having grown up in an era where new aerospace equipment can take decades to go from drawing board to the skies, I find it shocking at how fast the B-24's development occurred. It happened at breakneck speed. Prototypes One of the advantages that Consolidated had when they boasted about being able to beat Boeing was a new wing. This wing was so special that it actually had its own name, the Davis wing. So who was Davis? He was an aeronautical engineer who had come up with this wing with a new shape. It had a high aspect ratio somewhat like a glider but with a short cord which is the distance from the leading edge of the wing to the trailing edge. This wing was also somewhat thick, which allowed plenty of space for fuel tanks. Davis said that his wing had less drag over conventional designs than in use and would produce lots of lift even at a small angle of attack, which is the angle at which the wing strikes the oncoming air. Back in 1937, Davis had tried to sell Consolidated on his new fancy wing. They were skeptical and set the wing for testing in Caltech's wind tunnel. Initially, the results were not good, but they discovered that the testing instruments needed to be recalibrated. Then they ran the test again, and this time the results came back too good. They just didn't believe them. So they re-ran the tests at least two more times and finally had to accept the results. Consolidated decided to use the new wing on their new twin-engine flying boat design, the Model 31 XP-4Y Corregidor. They hoped that the new airfoil's trick of producing lift at a low angle of attack made it good for flying boats as it would reduce the need to pull up the nose for takeoff and landing, which is hard to do because of, you know, the water. Consolidated was very happy with the result, although the Corregidor itself was cancelled, mainly so that Consolidated could use the factory to focus on building more PBYs. So they installed the Davis Wing on the prototype, serial number 39-680. The wingspan was six feet longer than the B-17, but had a lower wing area, which led to less drag. They mounted the wing very high on the shoulder of the fuselage for maximum space for bomb stowage and easy loading. The plane was given four 1,200 horsepower Pratt & Whitney R-1830 Twin Wasp engines. Each had 14 cylinders with mechanical two-speed superchargers. The cowlings were supposedly borrowed from the PBY-Catalina cowling design. The B-24 was fitted with tricycle undercarriage, which was more rare for airplanes at the time, and was the first American bomber to have this configuration. The nose wheel was not steerable, and so the pilot would have to use differential thrust and differential braking for ground steering. Also very novel was the bomb bay door setup, which operated like an old-timey roll-top desk or a garage door. This feature allowed the bomb bay to be opened on the ground, as the clearance was so low that conventional doors would not work. This arrangement also prevented any aerodynamic drag when the doors were opened over the target. The planned armament of the XB-24 was several handheld 30 caliber machine guns. One gun would be in the nose, which was the station of the navigator and bombardier. Other guns could be operated from removable hatches above, below, and on each side of the fuselage, and there was a cupola for a gun in the tail. The XB-24 prototype was rolled out of the San Diego plant only about nine months after the contract had been signed and took off on its maiden flight on December 29, 1939. The test pilots were happy with the machine. Fully bombed up, the new bomber could fly 200 miles farther than a fully loaded B-17. If extra fuel tanks were mounted in the forward bomb bay, the XB-24 could fly 600 miles more than a B-17 with extra fuel tanks installed. The major difference would be, though, that the XB-24 could still carry bombs, but the B-17 wouldn't be able to carry bombs at all in this configuration, only fuel. One area where the XB-24 was disappointing was speed. Designers had forecast that the new bomber would be able to fly 311 miles per hour, But the test pilots were only able to squeeze 273 miles per hour out of the machine. In 1940, it was decided to swap out the original engines for turbo supercharged R-1830-41 engines. In order to make the turbocharged engines fit, the shape of the engine nacelles had to be modified slightly leading to the characteristic flattened oval shape don't know the difference between turbocharged and supercharged or turbo supercharged engines I've got an episode for that and I invite you to give it a listen anyway while they were at it they changed a few other things like removing the leading edge wing slots adding self-sealing fuel tanks widening the tail span by two feet and moving the pitot static tubes from the wings to the fuselage the result was the XB-24B. The first orders came from foreign governments. The French ordered 60 with an option for 120 more. The British ordered 164 and when France fell, the Brits got the French order too. According to Reuben Fleet, it was he and the British that came up with the name Liberator for their airplane. Supposedly, he had told them as his sales pitch, quote... This airplane can carry destruction to the heart of the Hun, and thus can help you and us liberate those nations temporarily finding themselves under Hitler's yoke. Close quotes. So the Brits called their plane Liberator, and the U.S. subsequently adopted the name too. Production Although production is always an important part of a warbird's story, In some ways, with the B-24, it is THE story. Of course, B-24s were built in Consolidated Aircraft's own plant in San Diego, which they tripled in size in order to build more. Bell Aircraft and North American Aircraft also built the B-24 under license. But the main story of the production of the B-24 is how the Ford Motor Company got involved. In December 1940, The U.S. government approached Ford to possibly build 1,200 of the aircraft. This was actually a bit of a stretch, as Henry Ford was an isolationist and a member of the America First Committee that didn't want the U.S. getting involved in foreign wars. He had even previously put his foot down and overruled his own son, Edsel's decision to take a juicy government contract to build thousands of Rolls-Royce Merlin engines under license for the British. Packard, a Ford rival, ended up with the contract. This time, however, Edsel managed to get his father to agree and they decided that if they were going to be in it at all, they were going to be in it big. They decided to build B-24 bombers like their Model T Fords. They made the insane pledge to build a bomber per hour. The Fords already had the land to build a brand new purpose-built bomber factory. It was where they had established an experimental farm which was named after the creek that ran through the property, Willow Run. They got their favorite architect, Albert Kahn, who had built many Ford car factories, to design the super plant. The main building had 3.5 million square feet of factory space, and the L-shaped assembly line was over a mile long. It even included a turntable to turn the unfinished bombers 90 degrees once they reached the corner of the L. And depending on which story you believe, Either the L-shaped building was to keep the factory from running into the next county where the taxes were higher, or so as not to interfere with the taxiways on the Willow Run Airport where the Finnish bombers would take off to fly to war. Although the factory was built in only five months, getting production set up was a nightmare. In the early days, Edsel Ford's pledge that they would be building a bomber an hour seemed like a naive joke. Somehow, 42,000 new workers, most of whom had never worked in the aircraft industry, many of whom were women who had never worked in industry at all, had to be trained, fed, and housed. Even one of the seemingly simplest things, such as providing enough rivets, was daunting. Each B-24 required 313,237 rivets. And so the rivet forging department eventually was making 7.5 million rivets every single day in 520 different sizes. People ridiculed Ford by saying that the plant should really be named Will It Run instead of Willow Run. Initially, Ford just made the parts of the bombers and packaged them up into what they called knockdown kits. These were basically giant, full-size model airplane kits that would be assembled in other aircraft factories. The first actually fully put-together plane came off the Willow Run line on the 10th of September 1942. And by 1944 the plane was indeed producing one B-24 per hour and 650 B-24s per month. Amazingly, Ford had reduced the production time per unit from 13 days to just one hour and reduced the cost per airplane from 379000 to 216000 Although Edsel Ford's promise was eventually vindicated, it did come at a great cost to him. He died of metastatic stomach cancer and undulant fever in 1943 at the age of 49. It was said that the overwhelming stress of getting the willow-run plant going caused Edsel's deadly disease. And although there's no proof, it has to be admitted that the stress of the job just couldn't have helped. The U.S. produced an overwhelming number of B-24's of all variants at the various production facilities. The final number was around 18,500, making it one of the most produced aircraft in history. This is even more impressive given the fact that every other aircraft above it on the most produced list is a single engine aircraft. The next numerous heavy bomber on the list is the B-17, with only 12,700 built. Many aircraft on the list are like the Cessna 172, or 150, or 152, and the Piper PA-28 series, which have been built for decades, while the B-24 had a production run of only five years. Now that's impressive. And when you have a versatile aircraft like this, Produced in such high numbers, for sure, there are going to be a dazzling number of variants and versions. For if you needed an aircraft for some different operation, why not use a B-24? There were literally B-24s all over the place. But here are the main variants. The B-24A, B and C were early prototypes with not many examples built. The first variant made in large numbers was the D model, and it should be understood that these were not all uniform either. It started off with a remotely operated belly turret built by Bendix that was sighted via a periscope. Experience in the field proved that this gun wasn't satisfactory, and so only about 300 were built with the feature, and they went back to building the planes with a manually operated tunnel mounted 50 cal machine gun. Further down the production line this gun was replaced by the iconic Sperry ball turret that we're all used to seeing on the B-17. Again due to practical experience in battle more guns were always being requested so later D's started having 50 cal machine guns installed on either side of the nose behind the framed glazing. These were known as cheek guns. Almost 3,000 D's were built, mainly by Consolidated in San Diego. 801 B-24E's were built by Ford. These were very similar to the D's, except that they used a different engine and kept the tunnel gun in the belly. Many of these E aircraft ended up being used as training ships. There was only one F model built, and this was to experiment with de-icing systems. The trend of the Luftwaffe using head-on attacks led to constant pressure to increase the B-24's nose armament. About 405 G examples were built with a powered A-6 nose turret with twin 50 cal machine guns. The B-24H also had a powered nose turret along with a bunch of other changes, such as the tail turn getting larger windows for better visibility for the gunner. The waste gunners got plexiglass windows to try to cut down on the hurricane force freezing winds, and their stations were offset to stop the gunners from bumping into each other during combat. Most of the 3,100 H's were built by Ford at Willow Run. The J was the same as the H, but with a front turret made by Consolidated rather than Emerson. 6,678 of those were built. The 1K model was actually an experiment. All B-24s up until that point had been built with the distinctive twin large oval vertical stabilizers mounted at the ends of a rectangular horizontal stabilizer. It had always been suspected that a single vertical fin would actually improve handling and stability. The XB-24K was built to test that theory by attaching the tail from another aircraft, a Douglas C-54 Skymaster, to a B-24D. The experiment was considered a success. Like many aircraft that were heavily modified during the course of the war the B-24J was getting fat and the L and M models were basically a liberator on a diet. The Sperry ball turret was replaced by a more simple twin ring gun and the tail turret was replaced by a handheld gun. Over 1,660 L's and 2,593 M's were built. The M was the last production model and some of them were built only to be scrapped immediately afterwards. Because of the sheer number of B-24s and their versatility, they came to be modified for a great number of experiments, special projects and other uses. The XB-41 was one of those. The idea was to add an extra turret to the back of a B-24 and bring along lots of extra ammo and no bombs. So that the plane could serve as an escort gunship. This plan worked fine on the way to the target, but when the regular bombers dropped their loads and were then sufficiently lightened, they gained airspeed. The heavy gunship was still carrying all the extra guns and ammo and just couldn't keep up, and the plan was scrapped. Operation Aphrodite sounds way more lovely than it actually was. Some war-weary B-24Ds and B-24Js were converted to radio-controlled flying bombs. These had all non-essential equipment such as armor, guns, bomb racks, and seats removed to increase the aircraft's payload by about 12,000 pounds. This was replaced with an equivalent weight of British explosive known as Torpex, torpedo explosive which was 50% more powerful than TNT. The drone was then known as a BQ-8 and it would be taken into the air by a volunteer pilot and flight engineer who would then arm the weapon and turn the control of the drone over to a radio controller riding in a B-17 mothership who would guide the drone to crash onto the target. The original pilot and flight engineer were supposed to bail the hell out of there way before. The project had a very notable failure when pilot Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. was killed in a BQ-8 when it exploded before he and his flight engineer could jump out. Without much success, Operation Aphrodite was cancelled. I always knew that the B-24 was going to be a big episode. I mean... It's a big airplane, many, many of them built, and there was a lot of history there to cover. But really, I had no idea that it was going to become the monster that uh, it has become. So, basically, we're going to cut off this episode here uh, so that uh, it's a manageable size. And uh, we've got another one coming with uh, the operational history, the survivors... And especially uh, a detailed profile of that most famous of B 24 raids, Ploesti. We'll even hear the voice of a pilot who was there and came back to tell the story. So I hope you'll join me then. World of Warbirds is researched, written, and recorded by me, Brian Pierce. The music is the Royal Canadian Air Force March Past.
1: Thanks for listening.